is part two of my conversation with Hunter Muse. We're talking about Amy Wallace, the partner of Castaneda Carlos. How much do you think that Amy's behaviours, such as the example about her getting men to sleep with her as a way, you know, to give them freedom or you know, tricking them in that way, that seems like something she was copying from Castaneda himself. So, do you think that that's true of some of these other very neurotic behaviours? Because that's the picture she paints in her book, anyway. Is is that um, there was a kind of systematised. Uh, power a hierarchy which involved this kind of sneaky manipulative cruel sexually yes. exploitative behavior in the whole system in the whole group i think jason i think it's a really romantic um perception and viewpoint but amy was a drug addict amy went to whole foods and went into the vitamin aisle and stole fifteen hundred dollars worth of vitamins because she was drugged out of her mind. She drove her car down Beverly Hills and sideswiped a whole line of cars because she was so fucked up on Valium that she got into this horrible wreck. Now, yeah. all of these things were drug related. It wasn't Castaneda related. Well, Castaneda think, chose her though, didn't he? So. Well, he chose powerful women that had money. He, he chose powerful people. He wasn't hanging around with beggars and schlubs. Everyone that he was around was a power player in Hollywood, a power player in the um, literary world. Those were the types of people that he liked, the people that he considered to have a lot of energy. Now, he admonished Amy all the time because Amy was 17 when he met her and so she was a very young innocent girl then and then she went into this world of um these pharmaceuticals and he hated it he wouldn't have sex with her when she was taking prozac because he said that it would get like it would affect his energy to be intimate with her so i think that it's easy to blame someone for indoctrinating you and for taking advantage of you but ultimately the onus is on you how far you take that and what you do with that and i think that she had her own um, mental issues she had her own physical issues and so she used those things as a way to um, cover up or to uh, mask her pain and her upset about his behavior and the things that he was doing because he was very um he was very sexual and he was having multiple affairs and with multiple women and you know as evolved as we would like to think we are even in this sorceric world there was still jealousy and there was that hierarchy and he would pit people against each other and so i think she very much fed into that whole ego thing of wanting to be the chosen one and wanting to be um the picked one and so when he said you're my wife and and he would you know manipulate her in these ways she bought into it she wanted that so 
you know, at the end when he didn't give her the rights to his books, that he gave it to this woman that he had just literally mm -hmm. met at a seminar, I think that that affected her. It was like, hey, I've been around here for 30 plus years and you're choosing this chick out of the audience and giving her everything. So I know, I know that from a, a very um, male, female, uh, you know, jealousy, power struggle way, I know that she was very affected by that. Mm. And it really backed up on her. What, so was she, she was around for 30 years then, from 17 on. Yeah. I mean, on and off. On and off, wasn't it? Yeah. And how old was she when she when she became his official wife, officially, in quotes? Oh, God. I mean, probably 20 years into them knowing each other. I mean, so it was a while. Right. So probably only 10 years that she was fully in. Yeah. Yeah. Still, I mean, it doesn't speak well for Castaneda. I just see I've gone out of focus. I've been out of focus. Uh, <laughs> doesn't doesn't speak well for Castaneda as, as this great narhal that you know one of his chosen wives and witches is such a terrible mess does yeah it? yeah and an embarrassment and he would bring it out you know at, at these Sunday meetings he would call these people out he said at one of them you're all masturbators you know he was he was very harsh and very hard in his criticism he did not like fat people he um, had his own sexual um, proclivities and things that he liked and I think those very much um, overshadowed maybe what was really going on it was like he chose people that looked very boyish they looked like young boys and he had them all cut their hair in this very short way that was this very kind of androgynous way and so that that says something about who he was and what he was attracting and, and the types of women that he was trying to attract and so i think that had a lot to do with her sabotaging behavior because she would then get heavy she would be taking prozac and prozac makes you very puffy and so he would admonish her and kick her out of the class so it was this constant thing of trying to keep in favor, trying to be one of the people in that inner circle. And so what does that do if you have one man? And he, they said this at a seminar, which was amazing. They said, you know, you can take two PhD professors, two women, and put them in a, a room with a homeless man. And within a half an hour, they'll be fighting for this guy's attention. Hmm. So if they have that attitude about women, you know, that kind of shows you and informs you what what the energy is, that they're doing that. They're using women's egos and their own narcissism against them to, you know, get more power, to get more money, to get more influence. You know, I don't know if Amy ever gave him any money, but I know she definitely helped him to make money. I know that she definitely introduced him to people in her world and ex and help to expand his world so you know i think that there's there's this merchant mentality that was still very prevalent in her mind like i gave you everything i gave you all my stuff i gave away my animals now what do i get in return you die and now i'm here left mourning and and crazy <laughs> you know so i think that that had a lot to do with her 
her relationship was that the people around her, uh, she was very close with Carrie Fisher, the people around her who also had drug addiction issues that are in the Hollywood elite, those people reinforce that stuff. So it's always easy to go to a psychiatrist and get more pills. It's always easy to go to a cocktail party with a bunch of other celebrities and, you know, speak your woes and, and be really, have that really enforced. And so I think that was one of the things that got her was that she didn't, by her own admission, she didn't do the work. She was put in this very connected position and didn't take that to the next level and really try to do something with it. It was like she wanted the magic to just happen to her. And that's not really the world that he was selling. Well, you say that she didn't do the work, but I mean, presumably Castaneda did the work, if anyone did, and it didn't seem like it served him that well. I know, Jason. I mean, when people asked in the seminar, they said, where's Don Juan? And they said, we don't know. And then someone said, Florinda said, we think he's trapped in the second attention. Like he's just in another layer of the onion. Well, how is that a fucking sales pitch for freedom if the the old Nawal didn't even took the leap and didn't even make it? If mm-hmm. Carlos took the leap and didn't even make it? Again, like as we're all going to these seminars, people are asking, well, what chance do I have? Like, do I really have a chance to do this? And they would shrug and go, well, you know, we don't know, you can try, but there's no guarantee. And then people would say, well, why do, why should we do this? And they would always say, well, for the hell of it. Is, is there a reason you haven't read Amy's book? Is it just you haven't got around to it? I think, you know, I, I really love Amy. And it was a very tumultuous time in my life because I was dealing with mourning the loss of my teacher. And I was suddenly had this kind of cold water thrown in my face of the the dark underbelly of what was really going on. And I think that it started to um, tarnish the way that I approached his work. And it made me feel really sad because I felt like, A, I feel like she's missing the point because she's trying to get something out of this person without really putting the energy in to do what he claims he's doing. But I also felt like it was such gibberish at the time that I was initially involved with it, that I just didn't want to get lost in her spiral. I was just like, I don't want anything to do with it. I have um, read the first 90 pages of it. I've investigated it online since I knew that you and I were gonna talk. and I would like to read it because she is someone that I do dearly love. I think that people are very complicated. And when someone dies, it's uh, the honorable thing is not to um, deify them. I think the honorable thing is to really see them as a fully fleshed out person with all their flaws and all of um, their uh, character um, nuances. And so I've tried to really in honor of her, I've tried to do that. And I see her life in many ways as a cautionary tale. So I'm interested in reading the book, but I don't think that I'm going to get anything out of it that I didn't already know 
in the time. I think um, whoever has helped her has probably um, tightened it up and, and put it in a concise way and in a terse enough way that it is a decent read, but I don't know how much of that is opinion and how much of that is actually um, fact. So, you know, I'm curious, but again, it's like, I still grieve for her. I'm sad that she died at such a young age. I'm sad she died in the way that she died. I think it's a fucking waste. I think pharmaceuticals are the fucking devil. And I think that she got caught in an eddy that she couldn't get out of and of her own making. It was of her own making. And so that's where the sadness comes in. And I feel like the onus and the responsibility is on her, but I am curious to be honest. Mm. I am curious. I would love to see what it ended up being. Well, certainly, I mean, it's, it would be hard in a case like Amy to separate, you know, her familial traumas from whatever Carlos, I would say, was exploiting. But anyway, that he was mirroring in some way. Like, you know, when a, a person has very formative traumas, they unconsciously reenact them by finding partners that will, will, kind of, will you know, recreate the situations that originally traumatized them. So I don't know hardly anything about Amy, Amy Wallace's childhood, although she writes about it a little bit in the book, but it's clear that she did grow up in a family, you know, in a very dysfunctional family. I don't know if there was a sexual abuse or, or how, how profound it was, but based on how badly she ended up, it was probably quite severe. So, so certainly it would be impossible to separate, um, you know, the causal factors of the, the past and then the present or the later part of her life with Castaneda. So, um, I don't think it's either or, as in, you know, either she was responsible for her own destruction because she couldn't, she couldn't resolve her own trauma, or Castaneda was. I think there's, you know, there can be an unholy complicity there between, between, Absolutely. you know, it's like this that saying, "My teeth hit, fit your wound" or something about Castaneda's particular mode of seeking power and exploiting power that seems to have you know, interlock with, with Amy Wallace's own trauma. That's my... And, and all of the women. Mm. I think the only woman in that group that did not have early childhood trauma was Florinda Donner. Every single one of them had some um, really intense relationship or issue with their parents, with their families. Um, Amy Wallace did experience sexual abuse at the hand of her mother. Um, they all had stories that were really, really traumatic in, in many instances. And I think that you're 100% right, is that that makes you, there's a symbiotic relationship between predator and prey. And so it's very easy for someone like Castaneda to be able to pick women out who are vulnerable, sexually vulnerable, or emotionally or psychically vulnerable, and be able to exploit that. Now, somewhere in that relationship, it's like, you know, I've heard people talk about um, sadomasochistic relationships. And the idea is that the mass as a sadist is the one who's in charge. But the reality is that the masochist is the one who's in charge, because they're the ones that's setting the limit. So that's where the symbiotic 
um, connection happens is that you have to be vulnerable enough to accept that kind of role as a victim and really seek someone out who has a predatory nature. And one of the reasons, you know, in my own therapy, I've talked to uh, my therapist about it. Like, why do women have rape fantasies? Why do, why do women have these um, power exchanges with men? And one of the reasons is that in role playing, you want to have control of that. So if you're choosing a partner, like if she's choosing a daddy figure like Carlos, and she's playing this role of daddy um, child and this weird incestuous thing with them, she's doing that so that she has control in that relationship. But the reality is that he really has control because he's outwitting and outsmarting and has more energy than her. And so he's really um, manifesting and manufacturing that in a way that serves his ego and his need. And she becomes just another quote unquote victim of that exchange. So I, I do believe that there is definitely an element of that and that people who go into these worlds have disassociative uh, disorders, um, are able to bifurcate their brains and, you know, take these um, other characters or these other personalities on to fit the, the um, situation that they're in. And so if you're a predator, then you're going to seek people out who can do that. And then if, you know, you have multiple sexual partners with multiple women and these women start to get jealous of each other, then you can play off of that and say, well, that's your ego. This mm -hmm. is your ego. And so make it about them and where this woman then feels dehumanized because, oh, well, I'm just a normal, I'm just a uh, stupid girl like every other girl that's jealous of her man instead of saying, you know, that's accurate. Like, it's okay to be jealous and it's okay that, to feel like you don't want your man to be with 10 other women or give all your jewelry to, away to another one of his lovers. Like, that's mm. okay to have those feelings, you know, but he exploited that. Do you think that was part of a sorcerer's rationale as in, I'm going to help you lose your self-importance by beating up your ego and, and you know, basically behaving in very manipulative and cruel ways yeah with the rationale that this is for your yes, own good right? of, co of course and of course you're choosing people who have wealth <laughs> so you're choosing people who have money to take from them you're choosing women who have jewelry to take from them and then saying oh that's your ego that's attached to that brooch that mm. was your great-grandmother's <laughs> it's like okay maybe that's my ego but you know is it your job to help me destroy my ego isn't that something that i should be doing on my own because if you've taken something from me i haven't really learned the lesson that's right it doesn't work it has the opposite effect exactly so. and it had jason it had the opposite effect on her she cried i saw her for hours weeping over her cats she loved these cats and he said, you know, these cats are, are, you know, vampirically, parasitically on you. you got to get rid of these things, hmm. you know. And so that destroyed her. And it's not like, oh, poor baby me. It was like, this is something that she was really attached to that she was still attached to even after she gave him away. So whatever he was trying to do didn't work. It didn't stick. Hmm. 
unless he was trying to do something sinister. As an outsider, um, I found Amy Wallace's book was almost like the capstone in all the other books in a right. certain sense. And, I, and I've even toyed with the possibility that Castaneda at some level, not that he would have been aware of her book, he might have been, but that he might have been aware that the way that he was going to leave his legacy was with this very tragic finale. Essentially, I mean, one can even see the trajectory of Castaneda within the context of his own teachings as in he failed you know he was defeated by the third enemy of the man of knowledge power he became a cruel capricious, capricious man it's 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 in there it's consistent with the teachings so there's even the possibility that there was there was some integrity in the way that uh I'm not, I won't say he allowed it to, to play out the way he did because I have no idea but the way that we've received it anyway finally like uh, for me Amy Wallace's book was a necessary appendix to all the other books because I don't know how much is true in any of the Castaneda books and Amy Wallace's ditto but at least it's a little closer to you know things that can be checked and referenced as compared to these tales of power in Mexico which actually don't hold up to scrutiny right exactly exactly yeah. and that and that's where 
I think that, you know, this insidious idea that somehow there was a greater force involved comes into play for me because again it was like he had been in the shadows for decades like once DeMille wrote this book and his book had been debunked and and he had really been exposed he was still given a doctorate you know he so somehow something was being covered up at UCLA mm. somehow somebody knew that what he was claiming was fabricated and they still went great guns with it they still went forward with it and that's what makes it feel like it was a grand experiment because it was like okay here we are in the 60s 70s we have this movement where you know people are doing these mind expanding drugs the world that we live in is in this very tumultuous state right now so we kind of need a guru. We kind of need some magic to believe in. And let's throw this, let's just let this play out and see where it lands. And mm -hmm. so he was in obscurity for decades before these seminars started to happen and another wave of his books started to come out. And I think it was almost like, all right, well, we'll throw this out there. We'll, we'll give these talks at the Phoenix bookstore. We'll see if people are interested. We'll slowly, you know, market this, these seminars. We'll get the word out there. We'll see if anyone takes the bait. And so many people around the world were interested and still, you know, sparked up and were like, okay, well, where, where is it? Where can we go? Where can we get this knowledge? That it was like, okay, well, we can sell this. Like we have an opportunity here to sell this, so let's do it. And so I think that that was the thing that reignited all of it. You know, he was, you know, these, some of these books are in the 17th, 18th um, print. So it's not like the books ever stopped selling. He had that going for mm -hmm. him, but now it's like, let's take it to the world stage. Let's throw ourselves out there. Let's see if people will come to these seminars. If we can get 400 people to show up at 400 bucks a pop, let's do a, you know, weekend in Maui and charge $1,200 and see if people will show up. And people came in droves. They came, there were waiting lists to go to some seminars because they were so full. So, I think that that was the thing that started the machine going and he needed these elements of people in Hollywood that that legitimized him and introduced him to the right people and kept him at the right parties and he just took that and created a, a manufactured industry out of it but I mm -hmm. don't honestly Jason I don't think he did it alone I really don't hmm I would I would urge you to read Margaret Runyon's book, his first wife's book, who talks about being with him in the period before um, Don Juan appears in his life and the period when Don Juan appears in his life. And there, you know, there's just some sketchy, some sketchy timeline stuff that, that goes on there where he claims he was somewhere where he was actually in Los Angeles with her, you know, so I I would venture to guess that there was some other force involved um, that was not Don Juan that helped him to to keep uh, this mythos going and to, and to really manufacture that mythos. Hmm. Well, let's uh, get to Hollywood then. Finally, 
symbolically fitting in terms of the creation of mythos and you're saying that he did seem to move in those circles somewhat uh, the the only one I know about is this Bruce Wagner who I didn't realize I just rewatched Map to the Stars the Cronenberg movie uh, because of this book I'm I've just finished about Hollywood so I figured I should just see what Hollywood's saying about itself it is a dark and quite interesting movie but anyway so I looked who's this Bruce Wagner and I looked him up and then I found out he was part of the circle so um, what what do you know about his participation and was he do you know was he there in those early days at the Phoenix bookshop or what, when did Bruce Wagner come aboard apparently well if you go on to sustainedaction.org um, in some of the Sunday talks Carlos talks about Bruce and how he first met Bruce uh, apparently there was a woman who was involved in Hollywood that invited Carlos to a party that Oliver Stone was at and Bruce was at that party as well and so I think that was the entree to um, Bruce and Carlos having a connection um, I know that Bruce absolutely loved and adored Carlos he was one of the men that that Carlos called the elements which were the male counterparts to the chalk mules that were teachers at uh, the Tensegrity seminars. So he was actually a teacher at the seminars. Now, he's a very striking man. And um, to me, in, in his own weird way, a very attractive man. He has hair on his ears. He's a very hairy person. He has a very expressive, um, almost animated type of a face. So I was immediately attracted to him when I saw him at one of the seminars. And he was always very cordial to me. We would talk. He was a writer and I'm also a writer. So we had that in common. And I was, I, at one point I was expressing this idea that I had, this film idea that I had. And he um, told me, this is so bizarre that you're telling me this because I have a friend who wrote a very similar script, a man who wrote a very similar script about the exact same subject. Mm. And it had uh, the same name. So he was immediately, there, there was some energy there between us. Like, this is so weird that you, you're telling me about the script you've written and I know someone who's written the same story. What was the subject? Uh, when I was in California, when I moved to California, and I was desperate for a job. I was trying to find some work in Los Angeles because I wanted to stay. I wanted to continue to go to the seminars. I still wanted to be a part of this, this whole situation. I had just moved there. And so I needed money and I answered an ad in the LA Weekly, in the, like the back page of the LA Weekly. And it said, hostess, um, $600 a week. I was like, hostess, like, what does that mean? And I'm thinking like, oh, it's a little jazz club and you, you know, seat people at tables. Like, you know, I had this very romantic idea of what that meant. Well, what hostess was, was a throwback from the thirties and the forties. They were taxi dancers. And so I found this club in downtown Los Angeles that was a taxi dancer club. It was a diamond dance hall. So women had numbers. There was a, a line of 
couches that the women sat on and on the other side of the room there were men and men would pick women and ask the women to dance and you were paid $20 an hour to dance with men. Well, dancing was a cover for um, some level of sexual contact, whether it be the girlfriend experience where this lonely guy would come in and you would pretend like you were on a date and sit on a couch together, all the way up to people having full-blown intercourse in this club. And this club had been around since the 30s in downtown Los Angeles, so I wrote a script mm -hmm. about my experience of working in this club and all these different types of men that I had these experiences with. Now, Bruce knew this man who had been a guest at one of these clubs, and he wrote about his experiences of dancing with these women. So that was really the glue that bonded us together was that I had been a dancer and this guy had been a, uh, customer at one of these clubs and Bruce was just blown away that a I knew what it was and B that I'd actually worked there mm. so that was the the beginning of our exchanges and our relationship but we of course we were never intimate but I just mean relating to him in these seminars and and in these events so he was uh, very close to Carlos as I said he was someone who introduced Carlos into the Hollywood world. Now there were other people in Hollywood. There was a famous agent, Tracy Kramer, who was also uh, called a quote unquote element, who was one of the teachers. Um, and again, all the people pretty much that were in the hierarchy of this group were somehow very well connected in whatever industry they were in, or they had a wealth they were they were powerful people they had money and so tracy was one of those people bruce was one of those people um there were other people that were kind of on the periphery um but also involved in the hollywood world uh, when i went to the women's seminar i saw famous actresses there and there was a famous um model there a victoria's secret model named suzanne lanza and she was at one of the at the women's seminar and so I just found it so interesting that again, he wasn't trying to get like the homeless dude on the street and give the homeless dude on the street the knowledge. It was like, no, I want the elite. I want the people who are well-connected. I want people who have money. Those are the people that I'm selling this system to. And I just always thought that was, you know, very unchristian, you know, because, you know, Christianity is really about healing the poor and, and the meek shall inherit the earth and, and really taking and having compassion and, and really helping people that um, are um, indigent or don't, don't necessarily have the same shot as everyone else. This was the opposite of that. It was like, no, I want to hang out with the, uh, the upper echelon of people. Those are the people that I'm trying to feed this knowledge to. And mm -hmm. so those were the people that he was attracted to and he was trying to surround himself by. And how close was Bruce to Carlos then in your opinion? He was extremely close. They spent a lot of time together, you know, and Bruce is on, he, he talks, there's a couple of different clips you can see on YouTube. If you don't know where they're all, send them, send you links of Bruce talking about his time with Castaneda. And there's a, a, a very deep love that you can see that Bruce has for Carlos. And 
I think that now he is the Bruce was also married to Carol Tiggs. Yeah. Yeah. He married again. I know that some of these marriages could not have been legal because there was no divorce papers from other relationships. So Tracy Kramer married Florinda Donner. Um, Bruce married um, Carol Tiggs. Like Wait, they- Tra- Tracy, there was uh, uh, two women got married. Is that? Oh, it's Tracy was a woman. No, yeah? Tracy Kramer's a man. Oh, it's a man. Married. Okay. He he later became Julius, but his name. Yeah in the in uh the hollywood world is tracy kramer and he's apparently a a very powerful agent there were people um that were involved in lots of different animation and there were people in all different areas of the hollywood system that were going to these seminars and again you know getting into the group or getting into um getting kind of closer to the the center of getting closer to Carlos than the average person would because they had influence and they had power and he that's the thing that he was attracted to was powerful people hmm. and did you see Bruce after Carlos died I've seen him um, again on YouTube I've seen him and I saw him somewhere I ran, I've run into him a couple of times in like random weird places. Do you know what his attitude is post Carlos's death? Oh, or his absolutely. Fi- yeah. He's still part of Clear Green. He's still <laughs> pumping and promoting the seminars. It's a true believer then. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. And you said you watched Map to the Stars. Yes. So did you see any obvious parallels between sure. Yeah? Sure, the the John Cusack character when yeah. he's doing all that body work on Julianne Moore and he's tapping the back of her thighs and he says this is where you hold your personal history. Right. This was a big part of Carlos's thing was one of the reasons that we were doing these movements like i said like he was a fattest he didn't like fat people and he said that you had to be very thin like like rail thin to in order to make this leap to make this jump so that beating on the thighs and rubbing all of that stuff that was part of uh what i would call an active recapitulation so what mm-hmm. you're trying to do is you're hitting certain points, it's almost like rolfing, you're hitting certain points of the body to release energy and tension that you feel is um, enmeshed and uh, tied into the fibers of that part of your luminous egg. And mm-hmm. so that beating that he was doing, and then she freaks out and is hysterically crying and has this, this physical... Um, experience after she has that massage that was part of it hmm well and John Cusack character <laughs> for a healer it's uh, not somebody I would want to get within 10 yards of me right he turns out to be a, a very despicable sociopathic character yeah I mean and, and that's fair again that's very consistent with uh, this this kind of um, duality that goes on in that world like do what I do do what I say but not what I do so it's like he's trying to um, present himself Carlos said once you know uh, he was talking about charity 
and how people who give charity or do charitable things, they actually feel elevated to the person that they're helping. Mm. So someone who's a healer or, or somehow um, thinks that they're living this charitable life actually feels like they have a, their ego says, well, I'm better than you. And that's why I have the ability to do this. When I went into the healing arts, because all the people that were close to Carlos went to Yosan, which is the Chinese medicine school in uh, Los Angeles. So he had them practicing Chinese medicine. A lot of people went into massage. They were quote unquote healers. A lot of the people that were in the group went on to do these types of jobs. And so, uh, you know, something that was interesting to me about that was again, the idea was there's this hierarchy. So this person, my doctor was uh, one of the teachers, Miles Reed. He's also in the group. He's still, well, he's, the, he's actually not part of the group anymore. He um, splintered off and he and his wife, who was also a teacher, have gone on and they're doing their own thing now. But what I realized is that they have this attitude of like, they have more energy, they are more tuned in, their, their energy is cleaner, so they're able to heal and help people. Well, when I went into um, the sex therapy world and I was a sexual surrogate, what I realized very quickly in doing any kind of healing work with men was that I wasn't healing anybody. Hmm. This is all you. When you go into a therapeutic situation, if you go see a doctor, if you go get a massage, if you go to a, a spiritual healer, what that person really should be doing is creating a sacred space for you to do your own work. Hmm. It's not that that person's doing something to you. It's just that they're vibrating at a high enough level where they can hold space for you to work through your own shit. So yeah. I realized that that wasn't what was happening in this situation. They were like my doctor, for example, was doing things specifically to me that had been instructed through Yosan, through Chinese medicine or through Carlos's work. So it was another way of indoctrinating me into the belief system. Like here's this ancient tincture that Taisha made. I'm going to give this to you and that's going to heal you. So it's like, oh, I've been given the magic elixir from this ancient line of Nawal's, this secret recipe. Well, come to find out the secret recipe was taking rosemary and steaming it in water, boiling it in water and taking that water. And then you were using that um, in a bath to allegedly remove the luminous worms that men put inside women. Right. So the magic isn't in that tincture or that, that method. It's in your belief in that thing. It could have been soap and water that they said, oh, here's this magical formula and you're going to wash your body with it and that's going to lift your energy. So if I believe that, then it is the placebo effect. It's going to work because I've completely been indoctrinated in something and I believe heart and soul that that thing, that person is smarter, more tuned in, um, more elevated than I am. So of course, whatever they're going to give me is going to be magical and it's going to work.
So yeah, let's uh, go back to Bruce um, and the, specifically maps to the stars, the parallels with Castaneda. So you mentioned yeah that that particular trauma release method. What about the because um, it's a very dark film. There's, there's very little in there that isn't dark, um, and I was wondering also about the relationship in that film between the the brother and the sister and how they both have this suicide pact at the end mm -hmm. well first of all they get married so there's an incestuous relationship that ends in suicide do you see any two, parallels two, two incestuous relationships so we have the parents that are brother and sister and now we have the children that are brother and sister that are also in love with each other right do you see any parallels there with well, yeah, I mean, I think it's really weird to say that this child, that you were a grown man and that you brought a child back from the second attention, a seven-year-old, and that you then later adopted her as your daughter and then later married her. Mm. I think that's a little fucking weird. Yeah, yeah, there's a whole bunch of weird in there. We'd have to pick it all apart, wouldn't we? So first of all, He's claiming uh, this was Nuri was the name. Yes, Nuri. Patty, Patty, uh, Par Patty Parton is her legal name. And the Blue Scout is the magical designation. Yes. This is written about in the Art of Dreaming. Yes, I think. So he's claiming that this be this person actually isn't an ordinary human being, but that came out of the inorganic realm. Yes, and that took the form of a seven-year-old child. Yes, and that then he adopted it, and then later he married her. Yes. 
Right. And they were lovers. Right. So, boy, boy. I mean, yeah, we're not going to be able to unpack that in twenty minutes, are we? But, um, <laughs> I mean, just makes you wonder, know, what the actual reality is hidden behind that magical, you know, narrative. She, I mean, she has a personal history. She has yeah. brothers and sisters. Yeah. You know, she has a life that is been corroborated that does not at all fall in line with her being this magical being from the second attention so you know there in and of itself he's manufactured this story that um, is consistent with his books that creates this mythos that you know, if you start to peel the layers back of that is so fucking disturbing and so creepy because it's not real. <laughs> it's not real. I don't mm. care. Like she has parents. She has sisters who know her, know her life. There's photos of her from her high school yearbook. Is like, it possible that he did encounter at the age of seven though that that part's real no yeah. no the time doesn't mash up right so anyway as i say because that, that's a whole can of worms unto itself <laughs> so it's bringing it back to the bruce wagner's can of worms the, fi the fiction of a fiction uh, i mean if it is a if he is do you think he is how much do you think he's uh basing that narrative on his experiences with Castaneda and if so what what's he trying to do there because it doesn't seem like uh, what he's describing there there's nothing uh, appealing or attractive or positive or healing about it at all it's just oh, a dark fucked up I know and we'll see this is the thing is that you're dealing with a demonic dark um very evil world. The Hollywood system is enmeshed with some very twisted, narcissistic, egomaniacal people, sociopaths. I mean, these people are fucking dangerous, okay? And I think what the movie said to me was, this is what I got out of it. My daddy left me my daddy abandoned me and I, all I see is darkness now because every character, there's not one redeeming person in that entire film, mm. nobody. And mm. if you look, Bruce is in the movie. Yeah. He's the limousine driver who opens the door. He's the usher. Mm. He's the usher who opens the door and gets the girl into the limousine. The daughter. The car. The car. There's okay. a he's standing next to the car, mm. and he opens the door, and the girl gets inside the car. This is at the beginning of the movie. Yes. Right. Okay. So the the metaphor to me is that he was the usher in the store in the film. He's the usher, but he was also the usher into that world, into the Hollywood world. Like he's. He's bringing people behind this velvet curtain. He's showing people in into the film set world, like show, showing this dark, creepy, fucked up system that these people are all working and living in. And 
everything on the surface looks beautiful and perfect, but what lies beneath that, just one layer beneath that is evil. It's, mm -hmm. there's not one fucking redeeming quality to any of that stuff. I think the Julianne Moore character is a mishmash of a lot of different women famous actresses that he knows in Hollywood and the main one I would say would probably be Carrie Fisher because he and Carrie Fisher were extremely close she's in the movie and she's in the movie yeah. so I think that but she's too old to play the Julianne Moore character to play herself but she's so, the only character in the movie who's playing herself as well yes yeah, yeah. and I think that his way of um, expressing her pain and expressing who she was and all of the insanity around her was to make the Julianne Moore character the the main character of the film and have Carrie make this cameo in it because it's like he loves her he wants to her to be in the film but she's too old to be the woman on the floor getting her legs rubbed you know so it's like he chose someone who is an extremely famous actress, but kind of on the way out of being like the young ingenue, the young starlet. It's like she's kind of experiencing the the golden years of her career. And that's very much what the film is about. It's very ageist. Hmm. And it shows that very ageist nature of Hollywood, you know, and it shows this really sick, insidious way that people it's like they don't give a shit if this person's crazy or this person's lost their kid they just want the fucking part like that was so creepy like when the kid dies and suddenly she's given the role like she's trying to pretend like she's not elated and over the moon but she's absolutely Mm -hmm. just thrilled that there's this woman has had this tragedy befall her and now she gets to play the the role of her life it's the child sacrifice motif yes for success in hollywood yes so how much do you feel that bruce was really trying to expose something there that he found abhorrent and how much because it is a hollywood movie i mean it's it's, it's got the hollywood stars and all the rest of it although it was marginal um right. so how much is he really exposing something he finds abhorrent and how much is he is he is he well I mean, if he, how much is he really part of that world and how much has he embraced it, do you think? Well, I wouldn't say that he's saying that it's abhorrent. I think, uh, I wouldn't say that it's uh, braggadocious or, or that it's, but I think it's very self-congratulatory in its own way. I, I don't think that he's showing, um, and none of these people are heroic in any way. None of these people um, make any great sacrifices to uh, to get anywhere like all they're doing is self-satisfying you know they use the kid as as much as they get they fuck this kid up this little boy up and then they bring someone else into the situation another young little kid so I mean what that's showing is like you're never on top you're never the one there's always someone at your heels that's coming to take the piece of the pie that you've got because there's not enough in the world so it's it's this very sycophantic subtext to it like 
nobody's safe. It doesn't matter if you're Julianne Moore at the top of your game or if you're some chick that's just rolled in on the bus. Mm-hmm. The chick that's rolled in on the bus is coming for you, Julianne. <laughs> you know, and literally in the end comes for her. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like she thinks that she's helping her by giving this girl that's the burn victim by giving her this job but she's not really trying to help her she's just finding someone else to abuse and the way they talk about the help you know the assistance and it's just so gross and it's like there's no apology to that it's not like oh and these are bad people (laughs) you know no, I mean, that can, of course, that can backfire if a film is moralistic, but I would say yeah. there doesn't seem to be any contrast, does there? And it doesn't seem to be a particularly compassionate portrait. It didn't feel tragic. Uh, so that's why, I mean, I was struggling what words to use for the alternative to an expose, and I almost said celebratory, but it doesn't feel celebratory either. But I just wonder, I mean, the more I've looked into Hollywood, the more I agree with your estimation. There's some very dark and damaged people people who are bent on you know passing on their own trauma to others and that one of the things I've observed that they do is they make films that celebrate their own depravities yes. in these subtle ways yes and what it's doing is it's indoctrinating people into believing that that's normal that that's a normal way to behave people look at shows like the Kardashians or like Uh, the simple life when Paris Hilton had a show and those things become aspirational. It's like, oh, I'm supposed to be this numbed out girl that all I care about is my makeup and being on the phone all the time. There's no real connection between anyone. It's not about creating good art. It's not about um, expressing something that is going to elevate the consciousness of the viewer. It's showing this deep, depraved world that they all swim in and it's almost co-signing on that saying like this is okay like this is the way it is uh i think one again and you know all roads always lead back to the government with me jason Mm -hmm. but one thing that you have to also understand is that a lot of the people that live and work in the hollywood system do have government connections Mm -hmm. like family that works in the CIA and now this person is the the number one box office draw and you look back in his personal history it's like oh yeah his mom is a CIA agent she works for the White House Mm -hmm. you know so it's not just like no one gets into that world accidentally and Mm -hmm. you don't get into that world without some level of sacrifice either someone in your close family is going to die or you're going to have to somehow give up something in order to be there. And that's just the system that I saw. So you're basing this on some personal experience as well? It's what, it's what I witnessed. It's what I was involved with from the periphery. I wasn't willing to Um, do the things that I was asked to do. Someone asked me at one point when I was working in that world, they said, you know, women love you. You've been a sex worker. You've worked in a taxi dance hall. You know, you should, you know, get girls. Get girls? What are you saying? Like, you know, be like a mama-san. Like a procurer, you mean? I was like, what? 
yeah, you know, we could throw parties and like I could bring the guys that have the money and you get the girls because they trust you. Hmm. I mean, Jason, I'm thinking to myself, are you fucking kidding me? You're asking me to take a, a quality that I have that women trust me and use that against them to bring them in to sell you or rent you young women? Like, it's just, it's such a creepy, insidious way that they operate. And it seems so benign at the time when these things are being suggested, but you realize there's such a dark uh, intent behind that. Mm. Now, do I think that there's groups that get together and make plans to do this stuff? I think there's a lot of ways to control the masses. I think there's a lot of ways to... Um, indoctrinate people and i think you can do it subconsciously you can um, influence people by creating these situations and showing them that these situations are acceptable and they're okay i was dating someone who was very much in the hollywood system he is on the number one show in the world right now and he told me about these weird parties he would go to. He said, yeah, I went to this one party. It was like hundreds of Japanese girls. They were all wearing men's underwear and covered in blood. Now, this wow. is a Hollywood party. Hmm. Like, what the fuck is that about? Like, that's the weirdest masquerade ball I've ever heard about. Like, it's just... Be again, and people are so desperate to get in to be part of that that they will literally do anything. They'll cover themselves in blood and walk around naked to, because they want to get one step closer to that path to to making it whatever the fuck making it makes or means to them. So it's like that's the thing that you start to see, and and if you're not complicit in that or if you're not compliant, then you're out. Like they don't want people to out them or to expose them. It's this very creepy way of showing you what they're really doing and then saying, well, that's fictitious. That's really not what's going on. But it is, there is this level of bragging or, sh or saying like, look what we can get away with. We can take these kids and throw them in the Hollywood system or in the Disney system, suck them dry, pimp them out, do whatever the fuck they want, and you buy the tickets, and you go to Disneyland, and you buy the products, and we've sold you this kid. And so then it becomes this indoctrination of, of little girls being objectified sexually, of young boys being objectified sexually, and we are witnessing this shit happening and no one's going wow this is weird like why are we putting full makeup on little kids and parading them around who the fuck is this for hmm. so i i think that that's the thing that uh makes me feel confused by bruce is that i don't feel like he's exposing something and trying to say this is bad or this is wrong i think he's exposing something and just reporting like hey this is what's going on <laughs> brothers and sisters are married there's incestuous relationships between people people uh get beaten and murdered and you know randomly die and yeah that's just what happens hmm. you know and there's no sense of 
um, the onus falling on anyone or the responsibility um, that studios should have or these agents or managers should have. No, it's just like if you're willing to sell yourself, we're willing to buy. Do you think that this is going to have to be my last question? So we'll probably end on a cliffhanger, but do, we are. But do you think there's a consistency then between that kind of Hollywood amorality, which is, as you're saying, very, I mean, much more than just amoral. I mean, it's really, every, everything is permitted kind of through the looking glass, inverted morality. Uh, is there a consistency or continuum between that and Castaneda's sorceress magical view that has a whole different context for all this and that morality is just completely out the window? Yes, because what what both systems are selling you is that if you respond negatively to this, if something internally tells you that it's wrong, then that's your ego. Hmm. That's you. It has nothing to do with the fact that this is fucked up. It's no, no, no. It's the lens that you're viewing it through that's wrong. And you should be detached enough. You should love people unconditionally enough to let them sleep with whoever they want, to let them do whatever they want and still be connected with that person. And so I think it's, again, it's a form of indoctrination we're selling these ideas to people, giving them the idea that this is the norm and this is okay to be like this. And the reality is that we all internally know we should all have a compass that says a movie is a movie that's fictitious. That's something that I'm seeing on the screen. I don't need to go apply that to my daily life. But if you keep showing images of um, women being raped, of children being raped, of um, children being sacrificed, of all of these horrible things, there is a level of the brain, the neural pathway that develops where you become immune to that. It's, It's like you're deadened or desensitized. I watch Family Guy sometimes and it horrifies me that the things that that he's exposing about Hollywood because he's really saying like this is the world we live in (laughs) this is the shit that's going on and people laugh and they think it's hilarious and they think it's twisted and but to me it's it's like if you really want to know what's going on in the world that's really the show that's the type of show you should be watching because this is a guy who's got power and he's got influence and he's showing you stuff that's happening right now as we speak and it's it's really more accurate than i think anyone really wants to believe it is but when you get in there you you see wow this stuff isn't like this is really going on hmm. yeah i don't know that show I, I suppose i'll have to at least google that whether i will have the stomach for watching it i don't know uh anyway let's round out that was that was a really uh, punchy place to end on and it means that I'm probably going to have to speak to you again if you're willing because I didn't know we were going to get into Inside Hollywood Dirt uh, and, and that of course is is my primary area of interest so well I would uh, love to talk to you about my Harvey Weinstein connection okay. uh, 
I would love to talk to you more about my Hollywood experiences. I worked for many years in that world and I would love to share those stories with you because I think that the only way that we're ever going to deal with any of this shit is shining light in these dark corners and people really need to be exposed for what they're doing. And uh, I think that's the only way that it's ever going to stop. Changes in the heart, change with the times. Strangers in the night, pass up and downtown. Changes in your soul, they happen all the time. That is the end of this week's podcast conversation with Hunter Muse. We're going to be on the road, I'm making these podcasts ahead of time because I'm traveling. So by the time this airs, in fact, I will be on the road, I believe, or just about to be going to Europe, Finland, and doing the otherworldly, alter-dimensional thing. But I'll try and keep these podcasts racked up in my absence, keep you all in the loop. This is, anyway, Jason Halsey at the Limitless, the podcast between adulticulture.com trucking on changes in the night pass up and down town changes in your soul they happen all the time changes in the heart change with the times Changes in the heart, change with love.